All right, if you're not there already, uh, get over there in your Bible or on your device to John chapter 19, verse 16. That's our text this morning. It's what the Lord has given us to speak to us through his word and by his Holy Spirit. The topic there, Jesus said, it is finished and dismissed his spirit, the title of our message. Let me start off with one word, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. We have your word open before us, Lord, and hopefully our hearts. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church, our church, and to each of us individually as your temple. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Those who agreed said, amen. amen. Sleeps with the fishes as a euphemism for death actually goes as far back as Homer's Iliad. It was popularized and became a part of our collective culture when the Corleones received a package containing a fish wrapped in the late Luca Brasi's bulletproof vest. Luca slept with the fishes, and the Corleone family went to the mattresses without forgetting the cannoli. There are hundreds of euphemisms for death. Bite the dust, croak, pass away, kick the bucket, six feet under, pushing up daisies, take a dirt nap, assumed room temperature, and bought the farm. The most consequential death in the history of the universe, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Lord gave the cross a unique description in the Gospel of John. We've encountered it before. He said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. That's back in John chapter 12. Lifted up is borrowed from the Old Testament. The Israelites sinned during the Exodus, grumbling against God in the wilderness. God sent poisonous snakes into camp. Many were bitten and died. The people asked Moses for help. God told Moses, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they look at it. Earlier in the Gospel of John also, Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The bronze snake lifted up on the pole illustrates Jesus being lifted up on the cross. An Israelite who is bitten need only look to the pole, believing God that they would be saved. Anyone who looks to the cross, believing God, will be saved. With all that in mind, there are two possibilities around which I will organize my comments. Number one, you are drawn to the lifted up Lord, or number two, you are born to the lifted up Lord. Let's take a look at being drawn in verse 16 through 24. H.A. Ironside, he's a good guy. You'll see his commentaries in thrift stores all the time. Uh, just buy them. They're fantastic. Harry Ironside. Uh, he writes, Those of us who are saved can look back and recall how the work of the Holy Spirit began in our souls. We remember the time when we were just part and parcel of the world around us. And then there came an awakening. Perhaps at first we could not understand what was happening to us. We became unhappy and dissatisfied. We desired something we had never known before. We became conscious of our sinfulness and guilt, and we cried out in our hearts for cleansing and purity. That was the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. No one can come to Jesus unless God draws them. 
Thankfully, Jesus draws all men to himself. He is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And so beginning in verse nine, uh, 16, rather, then he delivered them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. John omits Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross for Jesus, refusing the wine offered to him at the beginning of his suffering, the taunts, the three hours of darkness, his words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, the earthquake, the tearing of the temple veil, and the centurion's comments. John includes some things that are not in the other gospels, the witness of the inscription, the details and significance of dividing the garments, the prophecy fulfillment citations, giving his mother to John, the final cry, and the piercing of his side. John wasn't writing as a journalist or as a historian. He chooses events carefully to serve the overall theme of his gospel. Uh, you know, uh, we, we want to know the whole story. I recommended a book a while back. It's called The Life of Christ in Stereo. Bad name, great book. Uh, and uh, it, it is a harmony of all four Gospels giving uh, the order of events as this author sees them, every verse fitting in. He doesn't, if there's a duplicate of a verse, he, you know, he tells you, but it's taking every verse from the four Gospels and putting them in chron chronological order. It's really fascinating. It's also a ton of money online. Uh, you can only get it used, and, uh, but if you search used books all the time, you'll find it, and it's really, it's, it's a good read. Uh, and so each gospel writer edited themselves for the purpose of their theme. When we are sharing Christ, we might need to edit ourselves and get to the point. It's easy to be verbose. It's very difficult to be concise. But we want to be concise. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most prolonged talk, is shorter than the average TED talk. It takes only 15 minutes to recite. Now, I'm not saying that's all he said or that there wasn't a longer version or anything like that, but as far as we know, uh, the Sermon on the Mount took 15 minutes, and it says more than anything you're going to read uh, that, that is 10,000 words long. I mean, it's a masterpiece of concise talk. And so um, try and get right to the point with people and start talking about Jesus. Verse 17, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. All four Gospels are united in condensing the violence perpetrated upon Jesus. They weren't looking to be R-rated or TVMA. Let's agree that the crucifixion was gruesome. We don't need to go into detail beyond what they chose to include. I don't think that the more people see Jesus suffering, the more they'll understand uh, the gospel. Uh, you know, the gospel writers were very reserved about it. They didn't describe, uh, you know, the, the, the suffering except on a surface level, and they were very, very, very careful about it. Um, condemned men would carry the crossbeam on their shoulders to the place of crucifixion. Golgotha may have gotten its name from the fact that the hill from a distance resembles a skull. You can see pictures of it if you look in a Bible dictionary or maybe go online and just search for Golgotha and there's a, an area there where from a distance there's a certain hill that looks like it's got a skull in it. Crucified with Jesus were two criminals. The scene would point Jews to Isaiah 53:12, which says the suffering servant is, quote, numbered with the transgressors. And so uh, it, 
If you're an astute Jew, uh, if you're a learned Jew, if, or even maybe just an average Jew who's read the scriptures, uh, then you, you can start to see some of these fulfillments. Uh, and you would have thought, hey, the Messiah or the servant, the suffering servant of Jehovah was said to be numbered with the transgressors as Jesus is. And, and so God could use this to enlighten them. Verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Every criminal wore their charges around their neck as they, were, uh, making, uh, as they made their way to Golgotha. It's not unlike, you know, those, uh, the uh, mugshots they take where they have you uh, hold the, uh, you know, information in front of you and stuff. And so if you were condemned, they would put the condemnation around your neck and then they would put it on the crucifix. Think of the charges against you before you were saved. Can you imagine every evil deed and also the meditations of your heart and mind written on something? The placard noting our charges would be so heavy we would be crushed by it. We wouldn't be able to move. Uh, and so Jesus, you know, as king of the Jews, as the God-man taking all that upon himself for us. Verse 21, therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but he said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Pilate's perfectly parsed, purposely pithy placard was a diplomatic insult. What he wrote was accurate, but it slandered the Jews. Remember, this is a, remember their give and take last time we were together in the scriptures. Uh, how it, 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 uh, Pilate had lost a significant political battle against these Jews. Jesus was innocent. He was, no reason why Pilate had to, to have him crucified, and yet they pressured him and threatened to go to Caesar, and so he uh, handed the, Jesus over to be crucified, and now he's giving them one final shot, uh, you know, uh, and saying, hey, that, you know, don't say that he was the king of the Jews, and uh, Pilate says, well, Essentially, I'm trying to keep some diplomatic dignity here, even though you guys, you know, beat me. Uh, and so there's a lot of that going on. Uh, sadly, you know, men are always worried about their positions of power and authority, uh, and they're despising the Son of God. Uh, and so, uh, you know, real power and real authority was there in and with Jesus. Pilate was being used by God to inadvertently prophesy. God did the same thing earlier when Caiaphas said one man should die for the nation. He didn't really understand what he was talking about. The Lord uses unbelievers to suit his purposes. They act of their own free will, but they act in ways that glorify God and further his purposes many times. The Lord is probably using unbelievers you are around, not to prophesy, but, for example, to challenge your claim that knowing God makes you a new creation, indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. And so they, um, you find yourself in the world of, of unbelievers and uh, God using them to sharpen you or uh, move his program along. Again, not as robots, uh, but, you know, they're, they've thrown in uh, against God. And so uh, they're taken captive by the devil, the Bible says, not possessed, but uh, influenced. And uh, they are doing things that put you in situations where you have to rely on the Lord and the indwelling Holy Spirit. The workplace is a fantastic uh, place for witnessing. I mean, it just, it just is. 
Uh, because if you're a Christian, the devil wants to crush you and defeat you and wipe you out and, and embarrass you in front of uh, the people you work with. Strange things are happening, uh, you know, at, at work all the time. And we need to shake out of it, snap out of it rather, and realize that, oh, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual realm. And so unbelievers are being used uh, in order to, you know, uh, bring out what Jesus would do in these certain situations. And so uh, thank God for it. Have, have fun with it. I know that sounds bad, you know, people think I'm, but have fun. Some of the most fun times I had were driving people crazy in the real world, you know, just, uh, you know, just, you know, don't, don't take things personally. I've got, I've, I've told you stories, but uh, it's a blast out there, you know. Your boss is treating you bad, praise the Lord for that, you know. It gives you an opportunity to just smile and, you know, just let him know that Jesus is your uh, master. Uh, verse 23, then the soldiers... When they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Think of this as asset forfeiture. Whatever criminals had in clothing was distributed among the executioners, uh, usually a squad of four soldiers. The soldiers unwittingly fulfilled Bible prophecy. In Psalm 22, verse 18, David wrote, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus didn't ask the soldiers to divide his garments and cast lots. He, you know, on the cross, he didn't say, hey, he got, psst, psst, guys, this would be great if you would do this. And it would be, a, I'm, I'm trying to fulfill a bunch of prophecies here. No, he didn't do that. This was a supernatural providence. God foresaw this would happen. He put it in Psalm 8, uh, 22, which is really about somebody being crucified. It's about Jesus being crucified. And uh, it's an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 23 goes on. Now uh, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Jesus knew these, or Jews rather, knew these verses. I like to continue to remind us that um, the average Jew had a lot of Old Testament training and uh, they uh, memorized large portions of Scripture or at least knew a lot about the Scriptures. Uh, even they may be you know, ignorant in many other ways, but they did know the Scriptures. And so they knew these verses from Psalm 22. Uh, and um, it wouldn't, they ought to have been awed to see prophecy being fulfilled before their very eyes. Somebody in the crowd has got to say, hey, does this remind you of anything, guys? What are you talking about, you know, uh, Ben? Uh, well, uh, I, I remember they wouldn't have called it Psalm 22 because they didn't have those designations. But they would say, I remember the psalmist saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus said that. And then later in that same psalm, he talks about dividing garments and casting lots. It's starting to get a little weird, don't you think? I'm starting to get goosebumps just thinking about it. I mean, so this is all a testimony. It's all a witness uh, to not just the people who are around the cross, but uh, to the people who would hear about this. The birth of Israel as a nation in 1948 was a prophecy fulfilled before the eyes of the world. You know, people say, well, how come God isn't fulfilling prophecy today? Well, he, he, we 
talk about every week how he's moving in that direction with the unfulfilled prophecies, but in some time, some of you have been alive since the 40s. Uh, I pray for you. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, it, you, we might say in our age, in the modern age, Israel became a nation. That is the f- definite, obvious, absolute fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Uh, and some of the things that are happening with Israel in the world today are a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. They're not a maybe. They're not still in the future. It's happened. And people don't really care about it, but it has happened. Um, we can identify here some specific means by which you may be drawn to the Lord and lifted up, or rather drawn to the lifted up Lord. Fulfilled Bible prophecy can draw a person. I know that's what initially drew me to the Lord, the understanding that God had uh, given us the future ahead of time. The compassion of Jesus as he instructs John to care for his mother, a widow about to have her eldest son die in a cruel world with so much abuse, compassion draws people, does it not? You're, you're drawn to compassion. And then we see the authority of Jesus throughout John's account. He was fully in charge of his arrest and the cross. Remember at the arrest, that scene where when they asked for Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am, and they all fell backwards. From that point forward, he was absolutely in charge of what was happening to the point where he will dismiss his own spirit in a moment. Uh, That kind of righteous authority is something that human hearts uh, hunger for and yearn for and are drawn by. God uses people. He uses blessings and buffetings. He uses your circumstances. He can speak through visions and dreams to draw you to the Lord. Jesus draws all men to himself, and we emphasize all, whosoever, whoever. There are some who cannot reconcile God's sovereignty with mankind's free will. They conclude that for God to remain sovereign, his grace and salvation must be irresistible. It sounds feasible until you realize that it also means God only irresistibly draws a small elect group, leaving the majority of the human race to perish eternally. They were not subject to his irresistible grace, and so they are left on their own. On their own, they can't be saved. Would Jesus consign most of the human race to eternal conscious torment without giving them a way of salvation? I say no, and so does the Bible. I can conceive of no crime against humanity greater than condemning billions of people to the lake of fire for eternity who by God's own design could not respond to the gospel and be saved. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a sad or maybe even a sick thing, but uh, whenever this serial killer stuff comes out, like right now, I guess there's a series about Dahmer. There's some, uh, some new interest in, in uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. And uh, people always want to know, well, how many people did they kill? It's, it's like the, it's a competition for the greatest serial killer of all time. Uh, if grace is irresistible, and God irresistibly draws some to himself while passing over the vast majority of the human race, then he's the greatest serial killer of all time. And that's not at all the character of God. Besides, the Bible tells us that grace is resistible. As Stephen was being stoned, that first Christian martyr, he said to the Jews, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And so while we don't have all the answers when it comes to salvation and all of that, um, we choose to believe 
the theology that God is good and gracious and that uh, mankind has opportunity to be saved. Uh, it, it is just absolutely out of the character of God uh, to pass over people that he could have saved. Philip Melanchthon said, we do better to adore the mysteries of the deity than to invest, investigate them. This doesn't mean that we ignore unpleasant truths in the Bible, but if we come to a conclusion contrary to the nature of God revealed to us by Jesus, we're just wrong. Let us adore the ever-living king. Number two, you are born to the lifted up Lord, verse 25 through 30. Even though he was the only gospel writer present, John recorded just 12 English words Jesus spoke from the cross. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother, I thirst, it is finished. And so verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. An overlooked argument as to why we can believe the Bible to be true is that no human author would name several major characters Mary, nor would there be two Judases. When's the last time you saw a movie and you're thinking, all those people are named Mary, except those two guys are Judas. I can't keep these people straight. Who are they talking about? When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. The disciple Jesus loved is code for John. Along with Peter and James, John was part of what commentators called the inner circle. They accompanied Jesus at times, the others did not. You can't, however, see this as spiritual bragging by John or any favoritism by Jesus. Just because he took these guys with him, uh, it doesn't mean he loved them more or uh, showed favoritism because, after all, he doesn't. The disciples, at least some of them, had nicknames. It's common when you hang out with guys. John and his brother James were called Boanerges, sons of thunder. This James was also called James the Less. It can mean younger or smaller in statue. It's like calling somebody little or tiny. Hey, tiny. It's your turn to go get the wood for the fire. I mean, and so they had these nicknames going on, small in stature. He's not to be confused with James, the half-sibling of Jesus. Lots of Jameses. Then there was Simon the Zealot, not to be confused with Simon Peter. Peter is translated from Petrus, meaning rock, or actually you could call him Rocky. I wonder if they did. Hey, Rock. <laughs> Jesus renamed him Petra. Not to be confused with PETA in the Hunger Games. <laughs> Worst name of all time, right? Just Katniss and PETA. Petros was used to signify a small stone. Petra referred to a large boulder. A boulder. And so he went from being rocky to being the boulder. Then there was the infamous Judas Iscariot, but another Judas who they called not Iscariot. <laughs> hey, not so if you wanted this guy's attention, hey, not, pass the, uh, you know, the matzah or whatever and stuff. Thomas was called Didymus, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Thomas, both of them meaning twin. Scripture does not give us the name of Thomas's twin or whether he was saved or anything about him, but you have to wonder if he didn't play twin games sometimes where they changed their identity to freak out the disciples. Uh, I, we always think of these guys as just glowing with halos or 
you know, their eyes wide open, never blinking and stuff, but they were a bunch of guys at the same time, making fun of each other and calling you, hey, you sons of thunder. You guys, you, you guys, you want to do something over here? Here, I got, you know, take little James and, uh, you know, do this. Jesus telling Mary that John was now her son, telling John that Mary was now his mother, is quite remarkable beyond its obvious compassion. Jesus had male siblings, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. He had unnamed sisters, too. They were the offspring of Joseph and Mary after the Lord was born. The responsibility of caring for their mother should fall to these adult children. Jesus circumvented convention and gave John that responsibility. We know from the Gospels that his brothers and sisters did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. Jesus entrusted Mary to the care of a believer over that of his birth family. And so he said, John, you're going to take care of my mom, not Jude and Simon and James and my brothers. You are. It speaks to us of what the scriptures call the household of faith. It's a metaphor for the church that the Lord is building between his first and second comings. It's a clue to the reader that this is a new economy, a new dispensation, in which those born again constitute a single family in God's household. We spiritually are each other's brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, we find a distinction that only became true after the resurrection. Paul the Apostle recognizes three different classes of persons. Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Jews are the physical descendants of Abraham. No matter what anyone else tells you, God is going to keep his promises to the physical descendants of Abraham, to the Jewish people. He made unconditional promises, not just to believers in general, but to the children of Israel. And that's one reason you see Jews in the land today, right? They've returned to their ancient homeland against all odds and incredible miracles uh, because God is still dealing with them as a nation. Gentiles are anyone not descended physically from Abraham. When I was a young believer, with no knowledge of human history or very little knowledge of anything with it, for that matter. Pastors would mention Gentiles, and I think, well, are they from the country Gentile? Or, I mean, you know, why just Gentiles? You know, what about Italians and French and stuff? I didn't realize that anybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. The church, that's an entirely different entity by itself. It is spiritual and supernatural, and it's comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, relating as a family of those who have been born again. And so this is something new, a new economy, a new dispensation. Jews, Gentiles, and this mystery thing, the church. And so you are either a Jew or a Gentile who Jesus is drawing to himself, or you are born into the family of God, the church. Those are the only two options. And so today, in this group, in any group, you're either born again, you're a Christian, or the Lord is somehow drawing you. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, what race you are, he's drawing you to himself. He wants you to see him lifted up and to know that all you have to do is believe that he was lifted up in your place and you will be saved. 
After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. I mean absolutely no disrespect by saying that Jesus was able to check off every item on what we would call a bucket list. His list was not about bungee jumping or about retiring anywhere but California. It was about coming as God in human flesh, setting aside the independent use of his deity to live as a man among men. It was to be tempted by the devil in a sort of recreation of this temptation of Adam and Eve, but not in a beautiful garden with fruit everywhere in a wilderness while fasting 40 days. By the way, um, a couple of weeks ago when I taught, I twice said that Jesus fasted 40 years in the desert. I don't know if you caught that or not, but heretic, I guess. But anyway, it, it was, I'm correcting myself, it was only 40 days. It was about our, being, uh, our substitute and sacrificing himself on the cross to draw all men to himself. Verse 29, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, sounds delicious, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, put it to his mouth. There are several potential causes of death when a person is crucified, suffocation, cardiac rupture, heart failure, something called hypovolemic shock, respiratory acidosis, asphyxia, pulmonary pulmonary embolism, to name a few. Did you know that it is medically possible for a person to die of a broken heart? It's called uh, takasubo, takasubo cardiomyopathy, yes. (laughs) Otherwise known as death by broken heart, Quote, it is an emotional stress or anxiety-induced surge of adrenaline and norepinephrine that uh, creates a toxic environment for cardiac tissue. The victim's arteries tighten to such a degree that it stuns the heart into a rapid rise of blood pressure, the consequence of which is congestive heart failure. Dehydration was a potential COD. Jesus, dehydrated, received some sour wine. It's not to be confused with the wine mingled with myrrh Jesus refused when he first arrived at Golgotha, that was a sedative. Think morphine drip. Jesus resolved to die unmedicated. He had business to conduct and wished not to be impaired. The mention of hyssop reminds us that at the first Passover, when the nation of Israel left Egypt, the blood of the sacrificed lamb was applied to the doorpost with, it says, hyssop dipped in blood. Jesus is the final Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished is one word in the original. So that's the reason I started that, our title. Let me tell you, you know, in one word, it is finished. I think somebody called the president of the United States had a situation the other day we said let me let me give you two words right made in america and so i gave you one word uh it is finished you've heard that tetelestai can mean paid in full and that it's been found written on ancient receipts not exactly according to biola university the receipts archaeologists discovered have only to tell on them not tetelestai on the cross jesus did pay the debt we owed for sin but tetelestai means it is finished. It doesn't mean paid in full. It means it is finished. The total number of things that were finished grows every time you think about this most beautiful saying of Jesus' final cry from the cross. 
J.C. Ryle writes, the finishing of all the known and unknown sufferings which he came to endure as our substitute, the finishing of the ceremonial law which he came to wind up and fulfill as the true sacrifice for sin, the finishing of the many prophecies which he came to accomplish, the finishing of the great work of man's redemption which was now close at hand. All this we need not doubt our Lord had in view when he said it is finished. Spurgeon adds, all the types, promises, and prophecies were now fully accomplished in Jesus. All the typical sacrifices of the Old Testament Jewish law were now abolished as well as explained. They were finished, finished in him. When he said it is finished, Jesus had totally destroyed the power of Satan, of sin, and of death. Children of God, you who by faith receive Christ as your all in all, tell it every day of your lives that it is finished. Sinner, there is nothing for God to do. It is finished. There is nothing for you to do. It is finished. Every stumbling block is rolled out of the road. Every gate is opened. The bars of brass are broken. The gates of iron are burst asunder. It is finished. Come. So let me end with two words. It is finished, O Lord, come, which in Greek is to telestai maranatha. Amen.